the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello and welcome to the Situation Report today. Very glad to have you with me. My name is Jeremy Stahlecker. I am your host today. And this is the show where we do our very best every single episode to bring you the information and perspectives you need to navigate an ever-changing culture. And if you live anywhere other than California, if you're listening to this show and you do not live in the state of California, but you're listening to this show, that tells me a couple of things. One, it tells me you're probably pretty conservative or at least lean that way. Those are the conversations that we have. It also tells me that you probably don't like California. (laughs) That's what I draw from that. If you're listening to this show and you don't live in California, you probably don't like California. In fact, you may have been from California, but you've gone somewhere else. I don't know what your situation is, uh, but those outside of our state, particularly who are conservative, have a very interesting view of this state, and I get it. I live here. I was raised here. My family is here. My extended family is here. I love the state of California, and I will go on record as saying I do not like our politics. Our politicians outside of the city that I live in, I live in a great city, actually a very conservative city, But our state politicians, by and large, from our governor uh, down through our legislators, are not on the side of individual liberty and freedom. I was going to say they're horrible, but you're not supposed to say things like that. Uh, More specifically, they are not on the side of individual liberty and freedom. We saw this, and we've seen this, if you've been around the state for any length of time, you've seen this, but certainly on display for all to see over the time of the COVID pandemic Um, So many restrictions, things that absolutely did not make sense, uh, lives and incomes lost. Um, The desire of our state's governing body to control every aspect of its citizens' lives uh, was absolutely every day on display for all to see outside of the state and for those of us here to live through. And in the midst of that, something happened. Something very important happened, and I think something important not only for the state of California, but for the nation. There was a grassroots effort, and it was very grassroots. Again, this has been attempted many, many times over the years, but there was a grassroots effort to bring about a recall election, trying to recall our governor, Gavin Newsom, replace him with someone else. There were a lot of reasons given. You can read about those if you'd like to. Um, but it was something that has happened before, something that a lot of Californians don't get excited about because you see talk of this uh, every couple of years. But this was different. Money was raised. Petitions were signed. People got behind it. More than 40 individuals ran on the recall ballot against Governor Newsom. Not only did it make it to the ballot, not only did it make it to a recall, um, but it was going to happen. A lot of momentum, a lot of steam behind it. In the process of all of that, one name very quickly rose to the top as the person that conservatives in this state would get behind, a man that on this network, for sure, you don't need to have introduced to you, a man by the name of Larry Elder. 
Uh, Larry has grown up in California. He is from California. Uh, an incredible story of really from poverty to uh, being very influential in the state and across the country through his radio program and the other things that he's involved in. An amazing personality. When he threw his hat in the ring and said, I am going to get involved in the recall, I'm going to run against Gavin Newsom, quickly became the number one contender. The vote took place. He did not win. We could argue all day about what exactly happened. Probably some shenanigans. That's a political term. Look it up. Shenanigans. Um, Some things happened that prevented that from happening. But Larry Elder did something that probably no one else in the state could do. He legitimized the recall election. He caused debate to happen. He caused uh, ordinary citizens to take note, to stand up and see what was happening. He explained so much of what was taking place in our state, but not only in our state, in our country. He became, not just, again, on his radio show, but for so many of us here, the voice of hope (laughs) and clarity on these issues that we we're having a hard time defining. And uh, I was so thankful just for the opportunity to even vote for him. Uh, Had not met him, had not spoken to him, but appreciated him, his life's work, his voice, what he stood for, the people he had around him, frankly, and uh, the fact that he was willing to get involved in this when uh, really there was no personal benefit to him. He already had the platform. He's already had uh, many, many years of success but he was willing to do that because he believes in individual liberty. And I'm very thankful that he got involved in that. Post that, uh, I've had the opportunity to sit down with him for just a couple of minutes, caught up with him at the National Religious Broadcasters Conference and uh, was introduced. He said he would sit down and talk for just a couple of minutes. Uh, I intended initially to just ask a few questions to talk to him for just a couple of minutes, five to 10 minutes, He sat down and we had just an amazing conversation, not only about the recall, not only about why he ran, but about his life. He told a story about his dad that really in many ways left me speechless. His dad, a Marine who served in the uh, Second World War, uh, I served in the United States Marine Corps. We have some years between us, uh, but something in common. He talked about growing up in East Los Angeles. What a wonderful, wonderful story that he shared with us, and uh, I'm privileged to be able to share that with you. Today's guest is none other than Larry Elder. Right now, there's a situation brewing in the men's basic department. Men are being held hostage by overpriced brands that simply aren't mission-tested. That's why we're excited to tell you about Undertack, the only brand that's literally been battle-tested by special forces. These have to be the greatest boxers ever made because they cover all the bases. High quality material that's antibacterial, anti-pilling, and moisture wicking so you stay fresh and dry all day. Uh, I recently did a 30 mile run in preparation for an ultra marathon in a couple weeks wearing the Recon boxers and they were absolutely incredible. I loved them. They have a quick release fly and a secret pocket in the extra wide waistband for cash or tactical necessities. Undertack is durable, ultra light, fade resistant, and shrink resistant. And here's the best part. They're almost 30% less than the competition. Go to getundertack.com. That's getundertack.com right now. Save 20% off your order with the offer code SITREP20. 
All one word, SITREP20. Satisfaction guaranteed or your money back. That is a great American company that's unapologetically pro-America, pro-Second Amendment, and pro-military. That's getundertack.com. Getundertack.com. Offer code SITREP20. I'm honored to have as my guest today, Larry Elder. We are at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention. And that's kind of the thing that puts us in the same space. And uh, man, it, it, is, it is an honor to have you here at the table, just to be sitting next to you. You know, Jeremy, the irony is I'm from California, born and raised. My parents met and got married in Tennessee, where we are right now. Is that right? They got married in Chattanooga, Tennessee. No kidding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And here we are in Nashville. Um, yeah. You, you've been in California, born and raised in California. I'm a California kid. My entire family is there. We just went through uh, a recall. We could fight all day, I guess, about how it actually turned out. Um, I have my opinions. I believe you won. I voted for you. Um, I was behind you. So many people were. Can you talk about the recall a little bit? It's just it's top of mind for me, and it's important to me, and then maybe what that looks like for you going forward. Well, I, I think I won, too, yeah. depending on how you define the word won. I mean, I certainly feel that I waged a, uh, a very, very good campaign. Absolutely. Uh, as you know, it was a two-step deal. First yep. of all, yep. voters had to vote to recall him. 50% plus one had to vote to recall him. And secondly, they had to vote to who they wanted to replace him. So uh, on the replacement side, there were 45 people running to replace Gavin Newsom. <laughs> right. Right. I got 49% of the vote, which was more votes than all the other 45 people combined. I carried 57 of 58 counties in California on their placement side. The only one I didn't carry was San Francisco, right. and I lost that by 149 votes. Is and, that Jer- right? and Jeremy, we didn't spend one dime wow. or one minute campaigning there because we thought it was a lost cause. Right. I lost it by 149 on the replacement side. Wow. Uh, and I got in with eight weeks left. I waited and waited and waited, not to be, co- not to be strategic. I just didn't know that I wanted to do it. Right. I'd never run for office before. I think I ran for third grade class president. That was it. <laughs> did you win? I did win. Thank you for asking. <laughs> I carried three out of four rows. That's good. Uh, they're still cleaning up the blood. Sure, sure. Um, and I just didn't know that I wanted to do it. I didn't know I had the temperament to, to run for right. office. As you know, they, they go over everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done. I've been on radio for almost 30 years. I've got almost 27,000 hours of radio. I knew they'd be looking at every single minute. Yep. And everybody always says something a little weird. I've written 1,200 articles because I've been a syndicated columnist since April of 1998. I knew they'd go over every single thing I've ever written, and they did. Uh, And um, I just didn't think I would be able to to withstand the kind of nastiness that I knew was going to come. But I felt more and more, my pastor is Pastor Jack Hibbs of the the, uh, Chino Hills uh, uh, Calvary Church, and he was a big influence in my running, as was his assistant. Her name is Gina Gleason. Dennis Prager, my colleague at Salem, uh, asked me to run. Um, a woman named Jenny uh, uh, Sand, who I didn't know. She's a local activist. And Jeremy, I don't know how she got my email address, but she got it. Mm. And she was sending me letters all the time telling me to run, why I could win, how I could win. And I said to my girlfriend, some crazy lady keeps sending me all these emails. (laughs) Let's sit down with her for coffee for 15, 20 minutes, get her off my back. So we sat down for coffee. Four hours later, a stack of material she gave me, and I was convinced that she was convinced and then uh, the man who ultimately became my campaign chairman, his name is Lionel Chetwin. He's a longtime filmmaker. I've known him about 30 years. Yeah. He also asked me to run. And so the more I, I looked at it, and I looked at the people who were running, and I wasn't all that impressed, not right. to be disparaging to the Republican sure, rivals, sure. but I felt that if not you, who, if not now, when? I felt I had a, yeah. 
a patriotic and frankly a, a, a spiritual obligation to do it. I didn't feel it was my race, I felt it was God's race. And so I, I did it. And um, uh, I immediately became front runner. Yeah. I didn't expect that. I mean, yeah. I knew I had high name recognition, but Caitlyn Jenner has higher name recognition. Uh, but we came, became front runner and every single week, based on the polls, my lead increased. Uh, to the point where, I, as I said, I, I did so well. Um, my opponent outraised me, outspent me. Yeah. Uh, he never debated me. I wonder why. Right. Uh, right. And, the, and the newspapers didn't put any pressure on him to debate sure. me. Sure. And the media was as vicious as I thought they would be. Uh, I was called by a black female reporter for the LA Times, the black face of white supremacy, subheadline, you've been warned. <laughs> There's a Latina uh, uh, columnist with the LA Times named Jean Guerrero. She referred to my, my views as white supremacist views. Did you ever ask what that meant? I, I, I read those articles and, yeah. and a lot of your responses to it, but what, what is meant by that? They, they have no answer. It's just they, a they, disparaging they, remark they, the answer is, you. answer is, I disagree with you because you're conservative. Sure, sure. Even worse, you're a black conservative. Yeah. And, and therefore, you blow up the narrative. The narrative is that America is systemically racist. Along comes Larry Elder, and yeah. I'm happy. Right. And I'm, I'm happy right. I was born in America, right. and I'm, I'm pleased that I have all the opportunities that other people did not have in generations That's past, right. and therefore uh, I'm, I'm a white supremacist. It, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It, it's, it's disagreeing with somebody. And um, the toughest, most brutal interview I had, Jeremy, uh, aside from this one, yeah, of course, uh, is uh, <laughs> throwing some real curveballs today. It's <laughs> when I had a virtual interview with about a half a dozen black pastors, and I spoke for ten minutes first, and the interview was going fine until I said something disparaging about the idea that the police are engaging in systemic racism against black people, that the police are using deadly force against black people just because they're black. Right. I said that wasn't true. And they went nuts. Yeah, yeah. And one of them even said, I was going to vote for you until you made that statement. And all of them had stories about what happened to them or what happened to members of their congregation uh, that in their view suggested that the police were out to get black yep. people. Yep. And I said, let me give you a little mind experiment. I said, pick, pick out your magic wand, wave it over America, remove every smidgen of racism from the hearts of white people yeah. and from the hearts of white cops. I said, do we still have the phenomenon where 70% of black children enter the world without a father married to the mother? Right. Do we still have the phenomenon where half of all black homicide victims in America, half of all homicide victims in America are black, almost all killed by another black person? Yeah. Do we still have the phenomenon where the number one cause of preventable death yeah. for young white men is accidents? like car accidents or drownings, whereas the number one cause of death, preventable or not, for young black men is homicide. Yep. Almost always at the hands of another young black right, man. Right. I said, gentlemen, do we still have the phenomenon where a young black man is eight times more likely to be murdered than a young white man? And I said, if the answer to that series of questions is yes, then I submit to you that systemic racism is not the problem and critical race theory and reparations are not the answer. And they just went nuts. Not a single one went, you know what? I should rethink something. They all went nuts. They all just jumped all over me and said that I was a, a sellout and an Uncle yep. Tom and, a, yep. and, and carrying the water for the white man. It was ridiculous. And I said, you guys are role models. You guys are religious leaders. You guys are moral leaders in the community. You don't realize that the problem of, of black kids entering the world without a father married to the yep. mother is far bigger right. than the problem of racism. Right. And Lord knows we got right. racism. Uh, there was a, a Fox Opinion poll, Jeremy, 2002. 8% of Americans believe Elvis is still alive. <laughs> and 6% believe if you send him a letter, he'll get it. Sure. So the morons. Sure. Sure. You're always going to have morons. Sure. But are you telling me that right now, if you work hard, get an education, right. stay yeah, focused, right. you can't make it in America? If you're black, if you're brown, if you're Asian, if you're Hispanic, if you're gay? Nonsense. Yeah. Why, why is the... So every community in America has, has problems. 
Why is the black community so resistant to, to answering those questions, to considering those questions? They follow, they swallow the Kool-Aid, they've drunk the Kool-Aid, they've, they've drunk the whole idea that they are victims, which has been pushed by the Democratic Party so successfully. Yeah. How is it that 95% of black people go in there and pull that lever for the, for the Democratic Party when the Democratic Party has incentivized women to marry the welfare, marry government, yep. and, incentivize, and incentivize men to abandon their financial and moral responsibility, right. when the Democratic Party opposes school choice, which the majority of black and brown people living in the inner city want, yep. right. because they're getting the worst education. And need. Yep. Before the pandemic in California, 75% of black third graders in government schools, I don't call them public schools, I call them government schools, 75% of, of third grade uh, black kids could not read at state proficiency levels. And those levels are low, Jeremy, because they lower them all the time yep. so they can meet them. Yep. And the math scores are even worse. Half of all third graders in California cannot read at state proficiency levels, and 80% of the kids in uh, government schools in California are black and brown. They're getting the worst education, worst teachers, worst bureaucrats, worst principals, sending them to the inner city. Yeah. And I want school choice, and I'm the bad guy? Right. They swallowed it. Right. They bought it. It, it's it's unbelievable looking from the outside in to even wonder why can't we at least ask the question? Why can't we have the conversation? Why can't we have the conversation? Without me being called a, a white right. supremacist or a black face of white supremacy. It's juvenile. It is. And and you know, you look at the so-called black leaders, a term I don't really care for, who are the most prominent in America, Al Sharpton, Jesse sure, Jackson, sure. Yeah. Uh, Louis Farrakhan. Right. Look at their backgrounds. Jesse Jackson's mom was a teenage mother who was impregnated by the married man who lived next door. Uh, Jackson grew up in South Carolina. It was unusual for a kid to grow up without a father in the house. So Jackson was taught it when he grew up. Yeah. Jesse ain't got no daddy, Jesse ain't got no daddy. Right. Al Sharpton had a nice middle class life until his father abandoned the family, then down to the ghetto. Yeah. In the case of Louis Farrakhan, uh, his mother uh, was estranged from her husband, had a boyfriend, briefly took back up with the husband, got pregnant, and tried to abort uh, Louis Farrakhan with a coat hanger. My point is, all three of these men either had no relationships or a bad relationship with their fathers. They know firsthand what I'm talking about here. Hell, Barack Obama's first book was called Dreams from My Father right. about his angst at not knowing his dad. That's right. And so it's clearly the biggest problem facing right. the black community, and yet none of these leaders have made that the, the, the centerpiece of, of their whole agenda. It's ridiculous. We were not made to live in isolation. Sadly, many of our veterans feel they need to fight their battles alone. This self-isolation has led to the staggering statistic of more than 20 veterans taking their lives every day. A lot of guys end up drinking, a lot of guys end up losing hope. Someone will go to the VA and they'll try to get, you know, prescription medications to help with PTSD. You know, they'll get pills for anxiety, they'll get pills because they can't sleep, now they'll get pills for depression before they know it. they're taking 12 different medications. And when it's not working out, these guys lose hope, and that's why there's 23 guys a day committing suicide. The mission of Mighty Oaks is to eradicate the veteran suicide epidemic and help our warriors change their legacies. As a result, we've been able to help over 4,000 veterans and first responders by equipping them with the tools they need to live the lives they were created to live. Everything they said just kept hitting me in the heart over and over and over again. It's like all the things that I didn't know that I needed to hear. And uh, I opened my heart to God that week, dude, and like... <laughs> I've been a different person ever since. Our faith-based, peer-to-peer approach has one of the highest success rates of any program available today, offering hope and understanding to those who need it most. We provide our programs and resources, including travel, at no cost to our warriors. 
I remember talking to a licensed uh, social worker who actually handed me a pamphlet to Mighty Oaks. So I went. Glad I did. By aligning their lives to biblical principles, these men and women are able to lead their families, their communities, and our nation. Our mission is to serve and restore our nation's warriors and families who have endured hardship through their service to America and to help them find new life purpose through hope in Christ. It's your generosity that can make a difference in the lives of the men and women who have fought for our country and our freedoms. Now that they're home, don't let them fight alone. Learn more at MightyOaksPrograms.org. We started talking before we started recording about your family a little bit. And... Um, I'd love for you to talk about your family, particularly your dad, former Marine, but your story is is so compelling and so captivating. Again, if people will just step back and ask the question, why is Larry Elder different than so many in our community? Can you talk about your family and kind of your journey yeah. a little bit? It's 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 unbelievable. For those not in California, they need yeah. to hear it. Well, it stems from my, from my family. By the way, you said former Marine. There's no such thing as a former I, I, yeah, Marine. Yeah, right, that's right. Except, except Lee, Har- Lee Harvey Oswald. Lee, he's an ex-Marine. He's an ex-Marine, right. Everybody, everybody, He's the only one. Everybody else is retired. Yeah, retired. So people always say to me, because I, you know, I was in the Marine Corps, there's no such thing as a former Marine. I'm like, well, but I'm not still wearing the uniform. You're not active duty. Right, yeah. that's right. But no, you're, you're a Marine. We've talked about that at first. You're raw. And my dad uh, was a Marine. My yeah. dad was a Montford Point Marine. They were the first black Marines. But, but, but Jeremy, the, the, the real story, and I'll try and compress this. I know I speak quickly. Um, I couldn't stand my dad growing up. Yeah. Um, I thought my dad was mean. He would, he would whip us all the time for things I thought were, were trivial. And my brothers felt the same way about the guy. Yeah. And when he walked into the house, it, it, the whole house got tense. And um, I didn't like him. I, I, I intensely disliked my dad. Yeah. Now, I'm 10 years old, and, and my dad starts a cafe. Now I have to work for him. <laughs> and so I'm working for my dad for five years. Yeah. And my dad would yell at me when, I, when he thought I did something wrong. And when I say cafe, don't, 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 don't imagine some big restaurant. It's a diner where everybody can hear what's going on. Right, they can watch right, the, the grill. Right, sure. So when my dad yells at me, everybody in the, in the restaurant, and, and it's maximum 15, 18 seats, everybody can look at this. Right. So now I'm 15 years old. It's embarrassing yeah. if your dad yells yeah, at you yeah. like that. And I told myself, the next time my dad yells at me, I'm going to take off the apron and I'm going to walk out. So my dad yelled at me, and I didn't have the guts to do that. Yelled at me <laughs> next time. I didn't have the guts to do that. But finally, I worked up the courage, wow. and I walked out. Yeah. And on that particular day, the waitress had called in sick, and it was during rush hour, so it was full of people, and I walked out. My dad came home, he was not pleased. (laughs) And I was laying on my bed, and my dad came into my bedroom and said, why did you leave? And for the first time in my life, I spoke back to my father. And I said, Dad, I got sick and tired of the way you spoke to me, and I was not gonna put up with it anymore. And my dad looked at me, he paid me $10 a day plus tips, he balled up the $10, he threw it at me as I lay on my bed, and he walked out of my bedroom. We did not speak to each other for 10 years. Wow. And when I say did wow. not speak to each other, I mean nothing. Not even, do you think it might rain? How about those Dodgers? Think the Lakers are going to win? You were 15 at that time? Yes. We didn't speak to each other for 10 years. Wow. And it was easy to avoid it because my dad worked long hours. I'm in high school. We have a small house, but I know what time he's home. And I just avoid being in the same presence. I graduate from high school. I go to college in New England. I go to law school in the Midwest. I would come home to visit my mom, but I would just make sure we were in the same room together. I didn't speak to him for 10 years. So now I'm 25 years old. Yeah. I've passed the uh, Ohio bar. I passed the California bar. I'm, I moved to Cleveland, Ohio to work for a major law firm. I'm making roughly 160 k I'm 25 years old. Wow. I should be living wow. large. Yeah. And every time I go to sleep, 
I had difficulty. I know it was because of my dad. And I never thought my dad and I would be friends, but I called my secretary and I said, cancel all my appointments, I'm going to California, I'll be back in a couple of days. Wow. I was gonna go to my dad's restaurant, sit down with him for 10 minutes, tell him what an SOB I thought he was, he'd tell me I was an ungrateful son, maybe I'd be able to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I go to LA, I didn't tell my parents I was coming, I get a cab from LAX to the restaurant, I knew we closed at 2.30, I got there at 1.30. I got a big bag, my dad is stunned to see me, and I said, Dad, I want to talk to you. He goes, okay. Should I put your bag in the back? I said, no, Dad, I'm only going to be here for five or 10 minutes, and then I'm going to take off. Yeah. He said, okay, wait till we close. So I sat there, and I said, now, Larry, don't tee off on the guy. Don't tell him everything he's ever done. Uh, you and I are just not getting to know each other. You know how I can go. Hmm. And so my dad sat down, and Jeremy, I teed off on him. I talked for 25 minutes, nonstop. I told him everything he'd ever said to me, everything he'd ever done to me, the time he spanked me in front of my cousin Elaine, which was embarrassing, the time he spanked me in front of my best friend Carl, which was embarrassing. And you just been carrying that around for 10 every, years. It all came out. Yeah. And my dad and I are sitting as close as you, I, and, you and I are on two stools. <laughs> Finally, I was done. I was spent. I had no more ammo. And my dad looked up and he said, is that it? You didn't speak to me for 10 years because of that? And for the first time, I saw my dad cry. I didn't think my dad was capable of crying. Yeah. And he said, let me tell you about my father. And I need to pause right here. I knew my dad was an only child because we never got any Christmas presents from any, from any of our relatives. <laughs> I met his mom one time. Yeah. Um, beyond that, I knew nothing about his life and didn't care because I didn't like him. Yeah. Never, I never occurred to me, Dad, tell me about your life. Yeah, Who right, Who cares? Right, Who cares? Right. So my dad, for the next eight hours on these two stools, he told me about his life. And he said, Larry, your last name Elder? I said, yes. He said, that's not my father's name. I said, what? What's your father's name? He said, I don't know. I never met him. You never met your father? I said, who's Elder? He said, Elder is a man who's in my dad's life the longest, in my mom's life the longest. She was illiterate, didn't work, had a series of boyfriends, each one, one, each one more irresponsible than the one before. Elder was the guy who was in my life maybe three, four years. Wow. And that's why I adopted his name. Yep. And he was an alcoholic. Uh, he was physically abusive. And when, my, when I tried to stop him from physically assaulting my mother, he would beat me up. And my dad said, now I'm 13 years old and Elder's long gone. Mom has a new boyfriend. He comes, they have a room, they live in a room and every now and then she runs out of rent because they move from one place to the next. And my dad wasn't born in a hospital, doesn't even know his birth date. He knows the year, but doesn't know the date because she couldn't write it down because yep. she she's illiterate. Yep. And my dad's birthday is, is May 25 because when he enrolled in the kindergarten, teacher said, what's your birthday? My dad said, I don't know. She wrote down her birthday. Oh, so well. every time it's yeah, May well. 25, Jeremy, I say to my dad, we have a one in 365 chance of this being the right day. <laughs> it might be right. <laughs> so my dad comes home at the age of 13, starts quarreling with his mom's then boyfriend. She sides with the boyfriend and throws my father out of the house, never to return. 13-year-old black boy, Jim Crow South, Athens, Georgia, at the beginning of the Great Depression. And I said, well, Ted, what did you do? And my dad tells me his story. I went down the road. I, I just, I cleaned up. I cleaned up the barn. I got a job as a Pullman porter on the train. They were wow. the largest private employer of black wow. people in those days. Wow. And my dad was able to travel all around the country. And he came to this place called California once, hmm. LA. Yeah. And it was sunny and he could walk through the front door of a restaurant and get served. Wow. My dad always had crackers and cans of tuna with him because in the South, you couldn't go to a restaurant, you never knew if you'd be right. able to get a meal. Right. My dad was blown away, you could walk through the front door. He made a middle note, maybe someday wow. I'll relocate to California. Yeah. Pearl Harbor, my dad joined the Marines. I said, Dad, why the Marines? 
You know what I'm going to say, Jeremy. I said two reasons. One, they go where the action is. Number two, I love those uniforms. Yeah. <laughs> Your dress blues are the best uniforms, and you know it. That's the number one reason. Tell me about it. People enlist in the Marine Corps. Tell me about it. So my dad joined Marines, was stationed on Guam. He was in charge of cooking. He was a staff sergeant, which I didn't even know until after the book I wrote about him was over. My dad never bragged about himself. And even by the compressed standards of World War II, to become a staff sergeant in nine months is warp speed. He was older than most of the other GIs, wow. uh, and as a result, uh, he became staff sergeant and was in charge of cooking for the colored soldiers. My dad can look at a cake and tell you what's in it. He's That's that crazy. good. So the That's war's crazy. over, he goes to Chattanooga, Tennessee, where yeah. he met Mary, my mom, and went around to get him a job as a short order cook. And pardon the language, he was told, we don't hire niggers. My dad said, I cook for them, we don't hire niggers. He went to the unemployment office. The lady said, you went to the wrong door. My dad goes out to the hall, sees colored only, goes through that door to the very same lady who sent him out. She just wanted him to know what the rules were. My dad came home to my mom and said, this is BS. I'm going to LA where I was before the war. I'm gonna get me a job as a cook and I'll send for you. My dad goes out to LA, walks around. I'm sorry, you don't have any references. <laughs> my dad said, I need references to make ham and eggs? Right, right, they give me a chance. They treated him the same way. They were a little more polite about it, but they still, still didn't get a job. He goes to the unemployment office, and only one door this time. Yeah. Uh, Lisa, I have nothing. My dad said, what time do you open? She says, nine, what time do you close? She said, five. My dad said, I'll be sitting in that chair until you find something. My dad, my dad sat there for a day, came back the next day, sat there for a half a day. She calls him up. I have something. I don't know whether you're going to want it. My dad said, of course I'm going to want it. I'm starting a family. What is it? She says, a job cleaning toilets and Nabisco brand bread. My dad did that for 10 years, took a second full-time job cleaning toilets at another bread wow. company, cooked wow. for a family on the weekend to make additional money, and went to night school two or three nights a week to get his GED. The man never slept, Jeremy. Yeah. That's why he was so grouchy all the time. <laughs> right. 15 right. minutes here, 20 minutes here, right. hour here. Right. Not day after day, not week after week, not year after year, but a decade after decade. You do that, you walk into a house with three rambunctious boys, I have two brothers. Yeah. What kind of mood are you going to be yeah. in? Right. So as my dad is speaking over this eight-hour conversation, Jeremy, He's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and Larry's getting smaller and smaller yeah. and smaller. And now I'm crying. Yeah. And I said, yeah. Dad, please yeah. forgive me. Wow. And my dad said, Larry, there's nothing to forgive. You just didn't know. But follow the advice I've always given you and your brothers. Hard work wins. You get out of life what you put into it. Larry, you cannot control the outcome, but you are 100% in control of the effort. And before you moan and groan about what somebody did to you or said to you, go to the nearest mirror, look at it, and say to yourself, what could I have done to change the outcome? Yep. And finally, my dad, my Republican dad said, yeah. no matter how good you are, how hard you work, sooner or later, bad things are going to happen. How you address those bad things will tell your mother and me if we raised a man. Incredible. From that moment on, my dad and I became the best of friends for the next 35 years. I wrote a book about this conversation called Dear Father, Dear Son, Two, Two Lives, Eight Hours, about how yes. my life was transformed after eight hours. Uh, and um, I can report that it will soon be made into a movie. That's awesome. I got a, a, a screenwriter, I have a deal. That's amazing. And I have a big, uh, powerful agent, and we're trying to get somebody who's an A-lister to play my dad. So, uh, God willing, that thing will be made into a movie. What an incredible story. Yeah. What yeah. an incredible story. Which speaks so clearly to why you feel the way you do about the opportunity in the United States. My father would, would not allow me to complain. Right. I mean, my father would be ashamed of me if I complained. Yep. What in the world do I have to complain about? Right. I have an Ivy League education. I went to law school. Uh, believe it or not, I have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Yeah. Corner of Hollywood and Vine, <laughs> arguably the most, most uh, famous corner in the world. I just was on the cover of Newsweek. 
a week ago yeah. with Candace Owens and some other young black, uh, black conservatives. Um, I have a syndicated column. It's in 80 different outlets. I have a radio show in 300 markets. 1.5 million people every day, uh, every day listen to me. I was featured on 2020. I was featured on 60 Minutes. I've been on Tonight's Show with Jay Leno. What in the world do I have to complain about? You're never going to make it. Please, yes. Right. Man, what an amazing story. And all I did was work hard. I'm not brilliant. Right. I, I have a good, good solid mind. What I have is a work ethic. And, and about that real quickly, uh, I've always been driven and always had some sort of scheme to make money. Right. And my parents would always go, no, 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 no. <laughs> well, I love comic books. You're too, you're too young for this, but in the back of comic books, there used to be a little page you could send away for Christmas cards and sell um, them and then you could yeah. take, the, take the certificate you get to redeem it to get a bicycle. I wanted a black Schwinn bicycle, and my parents didn't have the money. So I knew my parents were gonna say, no, you can't do it. So I go to my mom and my dad, I said, I said can, I, can I do this? And they, my, I was shocked, they said yes. <laughs> so it's July, a big box of Christmas cards come, <laughs> July. Yep. And I'm, and I'm running around, and I'm big trucking time for around, Christmas cards. and I sold almost half the cards. I'm, yeah. I'm making good progress, but I'm walking, and it's only so much territory you can cover. And my dad said, to me, you know, Larry, you've shown such drive. Here's what I'm going to do. I'll buy the cards from you, and you get your bicycle, and that way you can cover more sell. territory and oh, sell the wow. rest of the cards. Yeah. Jeremy, guess how many more cards I sold after my dad got the bicycle for me? Probably him. not very many. Put it like this. If you want a box of cards, <laughs> I, I, can, I, can, I can give you're, you a good price for you're them. You're still selling them. And my dad said, I made a mistake. I took away your initiative. And that is what government has done mm. by incentivizing, as I said, people to marry the government and men to abandon their financial and moral responsibility. People are motivated by fear of gain and by promise of loss. And you mess around with that formula, you're going to get bad consequences, yeah. even for somebody who's driven. Mike Lindell has a passion to help everyone get the best sleep of their lives. He created the Giza Dream bed sheets. They look and feel great, which means an even better night's sleep for you and me. Mike found the world's best cotton called Giza. Mike's latest incredible deal is the sale of the year. Sale of the year. That means it's not going to happen again. This is the sale of the year. What is it? For a limited time, you will receive 60% off the Giza Dream Sheets that comes with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. You will receive a set for as low as $39.99. For a limited time, with any purchase, you will receive Mike's soft cover book free when you use promo code SITREP. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use promo code SITREP. Along with this offer, you will also get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the MyPillow mattress topper, MyPillow towel sets, and so much more. For those of you that would rather use the phone, and some of you are out there, you know who you are, call 1-800-870-0283, use the promo code SITREP, or MyPillow.com and use the promo code SITREP. Yeah, so you're driven, you're successful. What caused you to transition from being an attorney, really being very successful into media and communicating? Well, I never really wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't have that. I saw Perry Mason and went, oh my God, that's what I want to do. Right. I didn't know what, I, I wanted to be a writer. Yeah. But I also wanted to eat. Right. And I knew that <laughs> Writers people, don't eat real well. <laughs> no, they don't. And I heard too many stories about people getting famous after they're dead. Sure, sure. Uh, and I didn't want that. <laughs> right. So I went to law school because I thought it was more practical. And I enjoyed practicing law, but I knew that wasn't my, my, yep. what I was going to do with my life. I knew whatever it was, it was going to have to do with communication. And so I started a headhunting firm after I practiced law for three years. And made enough money so I could spend time writing. And the reason I got into radio is because I wrote a piece for the uh, Cleveland Plain Dealer, the largest newspaper in Ohio. Yep. And it was out 30 years ago. 
And I said, uh, racism is no longer a major impediment, and if you're black, whatever you are, you can be what you want to be. Yeah. When I say that now, I'm, I'm accused of being the, the black face of white supremacy. Imagine 30 years ago yeah. in Ohio. Yeah. So I get a phone call yeah. from a radio yeah. producer, and he said, I saw your article. Are you black? And I said, I've been told. <laughs> and he invited <laughs> some me. Some say. <laughs> some say. He invited me on, on his uh, radio show, his Boston radio show, and I was on for an hour. Yeah. And I was called <laughs> an Uncle Tom, and a bootlegging Uncle Tom, yeah. and a foot-shuffling bootlegging Uncle Tom, and a bug-eyed foot-shuffling bootlegging Uncle Tom, and a coconut, and an Oreo, the Antichrist, and the, the thing, Antichrist. The, yeah, and All the right. thing that you really call a black person when you want to hurt him, I was called Republican. <laughs> Whole hour, yelling yeah. and screaming at me, and I thought, this is ridiculous. I'll never do this again. I get back to my office, the phone rings, it's a station manager. He said, you were amazing. I, I thought I was, oh my God. He said, you have a good speaking voice, uh, you took difficult positions, you defended them without losing your temper yep. or your sense of humor. Have you ever thought about doing talk radio? I said, no. <laughs> he said, I, I got a guy sitting in, I got a guy uh, who's taking vacation, will you sit in for him for a week? I said, no. He said, why? I said, I don't like it. What don't you like? He said, I don't like yelling at people. I don't like being yelled at. Yep. He said, are you married? <laughs> at, the, at the time I was. He said, do me a favor, go home, talk it over with your wife, and call me tomorrow. I said, I'll do that, but I'm not going to change my mind. I knew nothing about talk radio. Yep. I mean, I knew who Howard Stern was. Right. I knew who Rush Limbaugh was. Right. But I didn't listen to them on a regular yeah. basis. And I went home and I told this to my wife and she said, what do you think about talk radio? And I said, I know nothing about it other than it seems shallow, glib, and stupid. She said, it is. You'd be good at it. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so, Jeremy, I sat in for that week and I loved it. Yeah. And I, it took me a couple of years. I met Dennis Prager. Ultimately, I met the right people. Yep. And if it weren't for Dennis, I wouldn't be on radio. Amazing. And the rest, as they say, is history. That's amazing. Yeah. But it wasn't planned out. With, with that in mind, as you look at the world as it is right now, America as it is right now, the media as it is right now, um, what would you define as the role of media? Not what, what is it doing, but what should media be doing? Well, media should be uh, fair and balanced. They should be telling the truth. They should be reporting, not giving reporting. their opinion. Yeah. Uh, the line between reporting and opinion has, has been completely obliterated. Uh, you watch uh, uh, a channel like CNN, uh, where America goes for news, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the New York Times, all the news that's fit to print, ridiculous. Uh, there was a big article about me in the New York Times, speaking of the New York Times, during the campaign, it was negative. Sure. And it did not mention that I was black, didn't mention that I'd be the first black uh, uh, governor of California. No mention of that, which that's pretty fine, important to the New York Times. Which is fine with me. Yeah. Absolutely fine with me. Right. It's about time we talk about people's qualifications sure. or right. lack thereof, right. as opposed to their race or gender or ethnicity. And I was fine with it. But in the very same day, very same newspaper, equally long article about the first female governor of New York. Of course. So she has a D at the end of her name, so her being first is relevant. I have an R at the end of my name, I cease being black. Yeah. This is the kind right. of nonsense that the media it, it does. Right. Uh, and you name the woke agenda, whether it's climate change, whether yep. it's um, uh, uh, electric cars, whether it's critical race theory, uh, whether it's the idea that the police are engaging in systemic racism, and that's what they push. And they are polluting our society. Yeah. They, along with uh, academia, uh, along with Hollywood, along with big tech. Yep. And they become forces of, in my opinion, forces of evil. Yeah. We are at a conference that is focused pretty specifically or exclusively on faith content and faith media. The Salem Booth, where you'll be broadcasting here in just a little bit, is right across from us. Um, so the role of media is to speak truth. What's the role of faith in media? To speak truth. To speak truth. Uh, through the gospel. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's the role of the, of, the, of the Christian media. And we're having a huge, huge impact. And I believe that's the answer. We need to return to God. I mean, uh, I have a documentary I didn't mention 
called Uncle Tom. Yep. Uh, it came out on Juneteenth, a uh, year before last, and I raised a little under half a million dollars to make the film. It grossed 10 times its earnings, which is a blockbuster, whether it's a, a little documentary <coughs> or a feature right. film. It made more money than all of the five films that were nominated for Best Documentary combined at the time, had a higher film rating, IMDb rating, than the one that, that won, and couldn't get, couldn't get arrested yeah. uh, from Hollywood. I didn't, I didn't think I would, but um, the point, my telling you this, is that the whole premise of, of Uncle Tom, and Uncle Tom 2 is going to be coming out in a few months, is that we have substituted government for family and for God. Yes. Uh, and that's what I think is the number one problem facing America. And we need to get back to that. Yeah. This is a Judeo-Christian country. That's founded right. on Judeo-Christian principles. Right. And that's the only path forward. It's the only path forward. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Larry, I, I'd love to talk to you all day. I know you've got a job to do. Right. But uh, <laughs> I'm all man, talked out. <laughs> I, I'm so, I so appreciate you stopping by. It really is an honor. Uh, when you entered the race, I'll tell you this, as a Californian who loves my home state, I'm not going anywhere. A lot of people running away from California. Um, so much hope. My family, my extended family, we're all in Southern California. Uh, you, you interjected us with hope. And uh, well, appreciate you. you doing that and continuing to be that voice and, for us. And you know what I've done is I've set up a, a, a political action committee. It's called elderforamerica.com. Yes, and we're raising money to help take back the House, take back the Senate, great. campaign in favor of school choice, campaign to get rid of critical race theory, campaign to get rid of these soft on crime DAs. I have a FedEx guy who delivers packages to my house. And he was so excited about the race. <laughs> and he would ask me over and over again, if you lose, are you going to stay in the game? And I told him I didn't know. Yeah. So I, we just set up the pack hours before I walk out of the house and the guy pulls up to deliver something. He goes, Larry, so what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I thought I was going dis to disappoint him by telling them this. I told him what I just told you about the pack. I said, set up a pack. We're going to take back the house, the Senate. We're going to do this, yeah. this. And he goes, he goes oh. So you're going to direct? <laughs> Only in California would somebody, right. would somebody say that. <laughs> you're your director you're, you're now. You're direct, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Is there anywhere you would like for our audience to follow you to, you know, to get the movie as it comes out, uh, other content that you produce? Sure, I'm on Twitter, at Larry Elder. I'm also active on, uh, on Instagram, on Facebook. Uh, you can find my documentary, which is going on to uh, YouTube and uh, Uncle Tom. I think now it's $3.99. We had it on um, Amazon Prime. Yes. We were able to get it on Amazon Prime Wonderful. and on iTunes. Um, uh, and make sure you follow my, my, my uh, radio show. Just, yep. just Google my name, Larry Elder, and I'm, I'm in a market near you. And if I'm not in a market near you, you can also listen to me on, uh, on your whatever app you have. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. And then find uh, podcast and, and else uh, the rest of it on Salem. That's right. Podcast mm -hmm. platform as well. Larry Elder, thank you so much. Jeremy, my pleasure. Wonderful. Hurrah. Hurrah. That's right. Thank you for watching and listening. Appreciate you joining us today. And uh, before I sign off, I want to remind you, if you are listening to the podcast version of this, thank you for doing it. Make sure you are subscribed. Whatever platform it is you like to listen from, uh, make sure you're subscribed so that this content gets directly to you as it is posted every week. We have some incredible guests, great conversations. You don't want to miss anything. The best way to keep yourself from missing what we put out is by being subscribed. So go ahead and check that out. Also, go over and uh, look at some wonderful podcasts, this one included, on the Salem Network, salempodcastnetwork.com, salempodcastnetwork.com. Thank you. We'll talk to you next time. My name is Jeremy Stolnicker. I'm the CEO of the Mighty Oaks Foundation, and I'm here with my pastor, Steve Chappell, who is the pastor of Coastline Baptist Church here in Oceanside, California. And we are here today to tell you about our new book, 
offensive faith. In the Old Testament, the psalmist asked the rhetorical question, if the foundations be destroyed, what are the righteous to do? And it seems like we're living in a time when the foundations are being destroyed in a lot of different ways. Here's the great news. God has given us incredible insight in His Word that can not only encourage us to hold on in times like these, but to help us to move forward by faith. And I think our goal in this book and what we hope for you, once you pick it up and you read it, is that you will be encouraged and equipped to go on the offense with your faith in a world that seems so often out of control. Order your copy of Offensive Faith today on Amazon.com. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.